0: Of God and Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 Ninth Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama, and if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us any time to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at two zero five four eight six nine two four seven. Also, visit our website c dot com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Some know the historical coincidence that occurred. 50 years of on the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. What some may not know is that the coincidences continue. You see, 50 years on the day after that signing, that would be July the 4th, 1826, late in the evening, the second president of the United States, John Adams, lay dying at his home. And no one knows why he said this, but the last words he ever said, depending on who you go by, are either Thomas Jefferson still lives or Thomas Jefferson yet lives. And then John Adams closed his eyes and a few minutes later he had died. Well, this was the days before 24-hour news cycles and Twitter and Facebook and so on and so forth. What he did not know and what some of you already know was that on that very same day, the 50th anniversary, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, July the 4th, 1826, Thomas Jefferson had died earlier that afternoon. But the coincidences didn't stop there. You see, a lot of people know that story, but there's more to it. Exactly five years later, July the 4th, 1831, the fifth president of the United States, James Monroe, died at his home. And so when it came to be close to time for the 60th anniversary of that signing, in the year 1836, the man who's often known by historians as the last of the founding fathers, James Madison, the fourth president, was nearing the end of his life as the month of June came to its close. And people began to realize two founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, had died on an anniversary. James Monroe had died on an anniversary. And so they began to ask James Madison, would you like for us to try to keep you alive medically in that day as best we can so that you could possibly die on the 60th anniversary? And he refused. He simply would not live as they could do it back then, just by medic- medication, it only on the hope of making it. And so our fourth president died one week shy, June the 28th of 1836. We're facing a holiday two days from now, July the 4th, or Independence Day, that means a lot to us in our country, means a lot to us, I think like a lot of holidays, it's become very common for us, many of us. We, you know, raise a day off or a day to grill out or maybe watch some TV or whatever. But there's something that we just appreciate deep within us about the concept of freedom, about the concept of independence, I prefer to call the holiday Independence Day instead of just the date on the calendar, July the 4th, because it really speaks to that, that inside part of us, that thing that really longs for something that sometimes it's hard to define as we think about independence. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, that passage that Caleb read for us a few moments ago, because in that text, Jesus talks about true freedom. And what we're going to think about this morning is, is a simple fact, really. And that is that when Jesus speaks about anything, he causes us to have to really make sure we're defining our terms as he would define the terms. And that's even true as it comes with the concept of freedom. Because most people, when we think of freedom, at least in our culture, think just you get to do whatever you want to do all the time. That's freedom, right? Well, that's not what Jesus talks about at all in John chapter 8. Of course, he stated in the, that text, you'll be free indeed. And that's really what we're using for our title. We're just changing it to the way we might word it, true freedom. What does that look like? And what I want to do this morning is simply walk through this text. We could find dozens of points and dozens of things of application. But I want to simply take away three things in this text that show us something about freedom the way Jesus would define it for us. And the first thing I want us to think about is how do we obtain freedom? You know, one of the more famous things Jesus said in this section of Scripture is actually a conclusion. We often quote the part of the text where he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Sometimes we just drop off that's even the second part of that. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. I remember one time preaching a sermon, and it was, this wasn't even my text. I just happened to mention that verse almost in passing. you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And, and after services, I was staying in the back, and a, a gentleman, very kindly, he wasn't even mean at all, but he said, you know that, that verse you quoted from John chapter 8? And I said, about the truth. And he said, yes. He said, you know that's just a conclusion, don't you? And it is. You see, when we, we only quote the part of that section where Jesus said, you know the truth, the truth will make you free, we're missing how Jesus lays out for us that we can obtain or gain freedom. I want you to notice that back up in verse 30 of this section, we're told that the people who were listening on that day had started to believe in Jesus. Well, you may have noticed here recently three or four times we've had lessons. We've noted the fact that as people were beginning to believe in Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus pushed back. It wasn't that at all, but he began to show them what belief really meant. It's not just saying a few words. And this is one of those cases where as they begin to believe in him, Jesus tries to show them this may be harder than you think it is. There's more to this than just knowing a few facts or just being able to recite something. And in this case, really there's more to it than just claiming you have the right bloodline. We'll get to that in just a few moments. But they had begun to believe in him. At least they thought they had. They had been honest enough to ask the question, Who are you? Back up in verses 24 and 25. But as they begin to hear Jesus and as they begin to believe, Jesus does not begin by saying, You'll know the truth, and truth will make you free. He begins by saying, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And you may think, well, so what? So what if Oliver quotes the, the, the second part of that, kind of the conclusion? I'm not meaning to say this morning that Jesus is trying to lay out some formulaic way of being set free. But it is interesting that if you take both of those phrases together, take that whole concept together, Jesus does lay out for us a pattern or a process, is a better word, of how to obtain freedom. And there are five steps to it. First of all, we must get into the Word. You cannot abide in something you don't have. You cannot abide in something that you never get into. And so simply implied in that statement is that we get into the words of Christ. We should be very grateful for the time in which we live, the place in which we live, where access to the Word of God is so prevalent. It's so easy to have a copy of God's Word, either physically there, and many of you have scores, probably dozens, laying around the house on shelves and elsewhere, different translations and so forth, and others carry around a Bible on their phone or their tablet and read it on their computer. It's amazing how much access we have to the Word of God. But just having it on a shelf does not mean I've gotten into it. We must get into the Word of God. And then Jesus says, we must abide in it. That word abide in John chapter 8, obviously literally means to dwell in or dwell on. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when He told Peter, James, and John, stay here while I go over there and pray. It's the same word, stay, abide. We know what the word means. And if I may tie these two together, again, you think about how easy access we have to to a copy of God's Word, but Jesus doesn't just say, pull it down off the shelf and read your favorite verse every day. He says to abide in His words, dwell in Scripture. I need to ask myself very regularly, Would that describe the way I handle Scripture? Am I living in it? Am I dwelling in it? Or do I just give it a passing glance every so often? If that. And then Jesus says, if we want to obtain freedom, we become more like Him. You think, wait a minute, that's that's not in there. Oh, yes, it is. If you abide in my words, you are my, what's the Bible say? You are my what? Disciples. The word disciple literally means a follower or an imitator. It can also mean a learner. Listen, I can't follow, I can't imitate someone I've never learned about. And so the only way to learn how to become a disciple of Christ or to imitate Christ is to abide in his words, to understand those things that he has said. And by the way, I would also make certain of the fact that you recall he told the apostles in John chapters 13, 14, and 15 that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, would guide them into all truth. Let's talk about this in a second. So it's not just, as we're talking about on Sunday morning, it's not just those red letters. It's the entirety of Scripture, specifically the entirety of the New Testament. It's how we become a follower follower or an imitator of Christ. And it's also, by the way, how we avoid one of the controversies we see in our day and time, where people want to display a certain kind of Christ to the world. You've seen these arguments. We've had them before, especially if you're on Facebook. I know you've had them before because they're everywhere. How often do we see people say something like this? Jesus wouldn't care about things like how we worship, instrumental music, baptism, the organization of the church. What Jesus was about was being around outcasts and loving people who society says are down and loving the sinner. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is, Man, Jesus, He railed against false teachers. And so we've got to make certain we stand firm on this, 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 and this. And anybody who would ever come against that, we better come with, with arms bared and ready to absolutely unload on them because that's what Jesus did. Folks, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which of those is true? And the answer is yes. Jesus stood absolutely firm on doctrine, on teaching against false doctrine, against religious hypocrisy, but he always presented the truth in love and he did care for those who were the outcasts. It's not either or. And we cannot choose to avoid doctrine to say, well, let's just be around people. But we also cannot just say, let's just hold to four or five teachings and never care about people. That's how we become an imitator of Christ, is seeing his life as presented and abiding in his words. And then he said, once we've done that, we know the truth. Once we become his imitator, his disciple, then we know the truth. Remember what John said as he opened his account of the gospel? He was introducing Jesus as the Word. And you come down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, that beautiful verse, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Son of Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Had there been truth before Christ? Yeah, of course. But Jesus was the embodiment of the fullness of truth. That's why he could say in that same account of the gospel, John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me or but through me. It's why in John chapters 13, 14, and 15, he could tell those apostles, the Spirit whom I send to you, he will guide you into all truth. How do we know the truth? We get into the words of Christ, we abide in the words of Christ, and we imitate Christ because he is the embodiment of truth. And then we are set free. It's a process. It doesn't just happen. We don't just become free just because, well, I want to be free. We don't just announce ourselves free. If we're going to be free in the way that God would have us to be free, then we must make certain that we do all of these things that He has laid out for us, all centered around the the essentiality of His words. That's what it means to obtain freedom. Now, if you were there listening to Jesus on that day when He said that, you might be going, what? What? Because that's, that's kind of different. That's a very different teaching. And also simply because if you were a Jew, you're thinking, I understand, I need to know the law of Moses and so on and so forth, but you're saying abide in my words, Jesus' words. And I want to think back to my bloodlines and my heritage. And so it's no wonder that in the second place you have a picture of earthly confusion. The response they give to Jesus it's easy for us to want to sort of cast stones at them and say, oh, how dumb are they? How can they not understand this? But did you notice how confused they were? We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Now, there's a couple oddities in that statement or that question, in there? One of them is, does it not strike anybody as strange? They say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. That seems just a little bit strange to me, especially since their whole appeal is to their bloodline, their history. How many times had the Jews been enslaved over the years? You go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? And and Moses has to leave them out of Egyptian bondage because they're enslaved all the way back those centuries before. You could think back to the book of Judges and at least seven times, seven cycles in that book where God used a foreign nation or a foreign king to overrun at least part of his people and quite often excuse me, quite often part of that uh, overrunning involved bondage or enslavement. You could think of the fact that Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken away into Babylonian captivity. And it took a non-Jew, Cyrus of Persia, to allow them to come back home. And even if they didn't want to go back in their history, Even if they didn't want to go back all those decades or centuries before, they could reach into their very own pockets or their very own purses and pull out a coin, and it was not a Jew on on the head of their coin. It was a Roman emperor. And do you remember when they wanted to put Jesus to death later? They couldn't do it. Because the Romans had taken away from the people they had overrun or taken over the right to capital punishment. That was only the Romans who could administer capital punishment. By the way, that ties all the way back to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 10 as a promise or a prophecy of Christ that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. They were enslaved. It may not have been with with whips or chains or anything like that, but they were not free. But that question they ask they ask, is very strange because it's, it's, it's our bloodline. That's what sets us free. We're, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're in that family tree. That's what really makes freedom. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're not free at all. But, folks, that question they ask really shows us a picture of what sin does, an earthly mindset does, because it confuses us. They were looking at the world through cloudy lenses. It seems sort of right to say this but they were utterly confused. But deeper than that, sin is also delusional because sin stands completely against what is true and right. Remember what Isaiah told the people of his day as he was describing them? And he said, you who call what is good evil and evil good, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who put darkness for light and light for darkness... I don't know how many times I've heard that verse quoted or referenced and then somebody says something like, "Well, that sounds just like our society today." And start naming stuff that used to be called evil now it's good. And that is a proper application. But listen to me very carefully. Each and every time any one of us, myself included, chooses willfully to sin, we are delusional. Because we have replaced what is good for what is wrong. We have replaced light for dark. Sin is delusional because it replaces reality as God would have us to see reality. But remember, these people were beginning to believe in Jesus. We saw that back in verse 30. And so I want to think the best about them. But Jesus is showing them this is what it means. You've got to understand this is more than just bloodlines. This is more than just saying, hey, Abraham is my great, great, great times 25 grandfather. Way on back there somewhere. And they're confused because they don't understand what freedom really is. And so Jesus drives home a point with a truth that our world does not want to hear. But as he helps us redefine the term, he shows us in the third place that true freedom comes through submission. Jesus makes it clear that when we sin, we are a slave to something. And we are driving ourselves deeper into that slavery or that submission. You know, we often commonly think about that. And we think of you know, addictions and stuff like that. But folks, it's true of any sin we commit. Each time we choose to sin, we are allowing sins to become a larger part of us. We are more stuck, if you will, in that mindset, in that way. And Jesus, by the way, was not just talking about the penalty of sin. Jesus was talking about the power of sin. It's easy to talk about the penalty of sin and say, well, that's what we're enslaved to. No, we're enslaved to the power of sin. And part of that power of sin could be implied, by the way, in verse 35. There's several interpretations of the verse. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. The one that makes the most sense to me in context, in the context, is that Jesus is saying that part of the power of sin is the constant worry about our mortality. While being free from sin means we think, yes, of this life, we think beyond this life. But that being the case then, we come to that great statement. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now we're calling this point, this third point, true freedom comes through submission. How can those two things be true? That true freedom comes through submission, but the Son sets us free and we're truly free. or We're free indeed because we must submit to Christ in order to be truly free. You see, nobody is truly free in the way we usually think of the word freedom. We all choose to submit to someone or something. It could be self. It could be Satan. It could be some addiction, some temptation. It could be God. It could be some other God. But we choose to submit ourselves to someone or something. And what Christ is trying to get across is for us to stop looking at things from an earthly perspective and to see what true freedom really looks like. And to do that, yes, we must submit to His way. We must be a disciple by abiding in the words that are His, as we talked about a few moments ago. But when we do, we have true freedom. Because we will not just be thinking about the difficulties and the setbacks of life Folks, we will be free to be what God created us to be here in this life and free to consider the glories of the life beyond without fear. Those who are faithful Christians, those who get into the Word, abide in the Word, become imitators of Christ, know the truth and are set free. Those who are not concerned about heritage and culture and bloodlines and so forth, but are looking at this life through a spiritual and and, and heavenly mindset, those people, we don't fear the judgment. People who have that mindset, we don't fear death. Yes, we still sin at times, but not because we want to, but if we're walking in the light, first John chapter 1 and verse 7 says that his blood literally continually cleanses us from all sin. And so we don't have those things that we fear. The fear of guilt that we had before we knew the blood of Christ. It's why all those years, even before Christ came, a thousand years before Christ came on the earth, the psalmist would write words that the Hebrews writer would borrow when he said, Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper at my right hand. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like real freedom to me. To emphasize the point, Jesus puts their own words back on them. They claim to be Abraham's descendants. So let's look at the bloodline. We're we're truly Jewish. We're truly God's chosen people. And Jesus doesn't dispute that at all. They were. they, They were from that bloodline. But he said they were wanting to kill him. Simply, or they would want to, simply because his words were not hitting them the way they wanted to. Were not what they wanted to hear. Now some are starting to believe him, but they're wondering. But Jesus is making them see that this is about more than earthly belief and just another good teacher. This is about more than just some small philosophical change. They needed to abide in his words, become his followers, his disciples, and see that only he could bring real freedom. But their resistance is seen in verse 39 when they say again, Abraham is our father. You see, it's all about earthly stuff. Bloodlines, family, history, culture. And said Jesus said, that's all well and good, but I'd rather your faith be like Abraham's. I'd rather your faith be obedient. That's what made Abraham special. Yes, God called him in a very special way in Genesis chapter 12. But what set Abraham apart was the faith that went with works, the obedience, and he submitted his will to God. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's when true freedom comes, is when you submit your will to God and are free to live the way God would have you to live it's tragic and it's sad how hard-hearted these people seem to be, and how much their sin showed through, their earthly mindset showed through. Remember, verse thirty had said that some were believing in him, but Jesus knew they needed to understand that they had to stop relying just on bloodlines and Jewish heritage and the pride that those things could engender. And so Jesus tells them that though they may be descended from Abraham, they weren't acting like him at all. They were acting like somebody totally different. They were being sinful. They weren't doing the works of Abraham. They were doing bad works. And that was all it took. And it leads to one of the saddest, harshest, most cruel statements, not just in Scripture, but ever said. As in verse 41, they said to Jesus, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father. Even God. How cruel was that? How awful was that? It is likely we don't know. The Bible does not reveal to us, but it's likely that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was dead by the time Jesus became an adult and began his ministry in Luke chapter three, the age of about thirty years of age. But even if Joseph wasn't dead, everyone it seems had heard this. I guess controversy, for lack of a better way of putting it, concerning Jesus' birth, this virgin birth story. And so, so now they, they make a claim that, that's just not true. We were not born of sexual immorality. You were, is the implication. What do we learn from that statement? You know what I learned from that statement? They were not free. They weren't even close. They were so entrapped in their sin, so entrapped in their earthly mindset, if you want to think of it that way, that even when they were pushed a little bit and challenged in such a major way, they showed their true colors and their true colors were awful. Listen, that's the way sin works. We can cover it. We can try to hide it. We can do all these things. But eventually, sin is going to show itself. And it's going to be uglier than we ever wanted it to be when it was let out. And that's what these people did. They finally were pushed enough where they said to our Lord Himself, we were not born of sexual morality. We really have one, Father, implication. You weren't and you don't. And we can look at that and say, I would never say anything like that whatsoever. But I can look at plenty of times in my life, and I'm sure you can as well, when I thought I had some sin hidden and covered away, I only to realize, usually because, if you will, it came out, how ugly it really is. And how awful it really is. And how much of a front it really is to the holiness of God. And how, in reality, I was not free. But the good news of John chapter 8 is this, it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus came to offer real freedom. He makes us look at the terms differently. He makes us realize that, that freedom means submission to Him. But when we choose to submit to His will, we realize that we are free from the penalty of sin, but folks were also free from the power of sin. We don't have to worry about those things that sin brings into our life because I don't have to worry about hiding anything anymore, covering up anything anymore. I don't have to worry about about all those sorts of things. All I have to do is be willing to be His disciple, be His imitator, and let Him set me free to the truth and then live in such a way submitting my will to God that I am free to be what God made me to be, His glorious creation shining like stars in a dark world Philippians chapter 3 may I suggest to you that's real freedom in audiences size by the way thank you for being here this morning I know we have some who don't know that freedom Get into the Word and abide in the words of Christ. Okay. The very same one who said, I can make you free. In fact, I will set you free. Told us how to do it. He said, if you believe that I am He, except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Do you believe in Him? The very same one who talked about freedom said, unless you repent, change, you will perish. Have you repented? Turned from sin. Changed your mind about sin. The very same one who talked about freedom said, If you confess me before my Father, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you confess me before men, excuse me, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Are you willing to say and state your belief in Christ? And the very same one who said he'll bring us freedom said, The one who believes and is baptized, immersed in water, will be saved. Have you been baptized? And by the way, it's no wonder that Peter then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the verse we all know, would use a word that literally means repent and be baptized for the liberation from your sins. That's where freedom is found. Many of us in this room have done that. If you haven't, today's the day. But if you have, are you living as a Christian in such a way where you're, you're trying to kind of have it both ways? You're kind, of, you're kind of being faithful sometimes, but there's this thing over here you don't really want anybody to know about, or maybe a few people do know about, but nobody doesn't have to get out or anything. But you're not free. You're not free. Because you're having to try to live straddling the fence all the time, and you're sick of it, and you're tired of it. And it's time to let Jesus take those things away. It's time to confess your sin. It's time to repent of those sins, and it's time to let it go. And let Him forgive you and live in freedom. And if we can pray with you to that end as a Christian, we'd be more than honored to do so. It's time to be free. And the time is now, as we stand and sing, to encourage you.